Good morning. Is this on? Good morning, guys. How are you? If you have a Bible, please open it up to the book of First John. First John chapter five is where we're at this morning. First John chapter five. We only have two more sermons left in the book of First John, uh, and then we'll be uh, starting in the life of Elijah for a, for a few weeks, and so I'm really excited about that. But today, we're still in, in 1 John chapter 5. Um, if you need a Bible, there's people walking around to give you one. Just slip up your hand, and they would like to, to slip that to you. Um, uh, the other day, um, I was making lunch for my kids, and as I was kind of laying out the options of what everybody could eat, it was then in that moment that my son, Tucker, he's a fifth grader, uh, he told me, hey, Dad, um, I'm a vegetarian now. And uh, he's like, I just, I don't like eating animals anymore. And I said, oh, okay, you know, well, uh, you can do PB&J, you know, because until we get more options for you, but that's whatever, that's fine. And uh, so my daughter then ran into the garage and opened up our freezer and found some taquitos, some frozen taquitos. And she ran the house and she said, oh, can I have taquitos for lunch? And I said, oh, yeah, sure. You know, you can have the taquitos for lunch. And my son, Tucker, the vegetarian, said, oh, yeah, yeah, me too, me too, me too. That's what I want. That's what I want. That's what I want. And so, um, and I looked at him and I just said lovingly, like, hey, buddy, I thought you were, I thought you were a vegetarian. You know, these have, these have chicken in them. And so he kind of goes, oh, yeah, okay. And he kind of like lowers his head and gets quiet, and then he looks up at me kind of confidently and joyfully and just says, uh, I'll be a vegetarian tomorrow. I'll be a vegetarian tomorrow. And I just kind of laughed and, and lovingly said, you know, that's cool, buddy. You could be vegetarian today and then tomorrow and then not or whatever. That's fine in our house, you know, whatever. But uh, just to let you know that if you have a conviction about something like that and you're like, I'm a vegetarian now, you are a vegetarian now, not just tomorrow, right? Uh, if you are a vegetarian now and whenever you want to be, that's just called being a flexible eater. You know, that's really all that's called. And so um, we know this, right? You know, if I have a conviction in my life about something, uh, that manifests itself in how I live, right? Like fundamentally, that's how belief and conviction even works. Um, I, what I want to ask you this morning is what does your conviction about Jesus do to your life? Is, is being a Christian, is saying, I believe in Jesus, what does that do to your life, like, like real, in a real way, like do to your life that is visible and that people can see, you know? Or are you the kind of person that might say, I'll be a Christian tomorrow. I'll be a Christian tomorrow. First uh, John has spoken quite a bit about being a child of God, about walking in the light, about not being deceived, about loving other people. But here, when you get to the final chapter of this heartfelt letter that he writes to a people that he loves... He shifts his emphasis towards faith. He shifts the emphasis towards belief. In the entire letter of 1 John, he makes 10 references to believing. And in this final chapter, you find seven out of those 10 references. The emphasis here clearly is on our belief in Jesus as the Son of God and what that faith looks like, what it even feels like, and what it's strengthened by. And so this morning... Um, what we see is we see the actions of faith, faith in action, really, in verses 1 through 5. And we see the witnesses of faith in verses 6 through 10 that are meant to really strengthen your faith. And then lastly, um, John concludes by showing you sort of the transformation that faith brings. 
transformation that faith brings. So first, let's, let's read this here, verses 1 through 5, as we look at the actions of faith. This is how we're going to call it. In verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Uh, Notice here in verse 1 something that looks only kind of subtle to us. It's there. But if this letter were landing in your lap, you know, back in the day, maybe you're in Ephesus or something like that when you receive this letter, it'd be really, really clear here what John is saying. Don't miss it. It says, everyone who believes which believe in faith, that word faith is in your text, those are the same exact words, that faith is the noun, believe is the verb, right? And this is believing in a present kind of way. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. The phrase has been is telling you something that's happened to you in your past, but in a very completed kind of way. It's done, right? You've been born again. It's happened to you. What this is trying to show you is that regeneration The regeneration, that new birth that you experience in Christ, it comes first, right? The work of God in your heart is coming first. So a sign that you've been born again, this is important, the sign that you've been born again here is that you believe in Jesus. That's what he's saying. If you continue to believe in Jesus, so a true Christian will always come back to believing in Jesus, okay? So it's, it's God's regenerating work in our lives that produces faith, and that faith displays itself in some particular ways that John wants to unpack, and he talks about how it displays itself in love and in obedience and in victory. But these things are, are not meant to be taken separately. This isn't like an appetizer, an entree, and dessert or something. This is like, again, this is like a casserole, okay? These things just are together, okay? If you have faith, you have these things in your life as a product, right? So first, John says that if you've been born of God and believe in Jesus, that he is the Christ, that new birth, right, it will manifest itself in love, okay? We've talked about this at length, like last week especially. So John says here in these verses that it's impossible to love God without loving other Christians. But notice here, he's also saying it's impossible to love other Christians and to not love God. We're talking about in true senses of those words. So if you say, I love God, but I can do without this, like that's not a thing, okay? But also, if you say, I love this, I love my GBC family, but I can kind of do without God, like that's not a thing either, okay? He's saying these things really go together. This is one evidence that John's bringing forward, once again, as evidence that you've been born again. The second evidence that we've been born of God and believe in Jesus is our obedience. It's our obedience. And we see here that love and obedience, they're not pitted against one another, but they're tethered to each other. John writes this in verses 2 through 3. John has said this before even to us. In chapter 2, verse 5, if you look back in your Bibles, he says the same thing. Whoever keeps his word, it's like the idea of obeying it, right? Truly, the love of God is perfected. 
So the evidence that we love God, it's not just a, a warm, fuzzy feeling like, man, I'm really in love with God today kind of thing. That's not what this is talking about. It's doing what God commands. It's doing what God commands. Of course, obedience doesn't save you, though. Only Jesus saves us, but once we are saved, John's telling you that, that you find yourself wanting to obey God, right? You find yourself wanting to do things that you didn't normally want to do. And when you do the things that God hates, there's a grief, there's even a depression that you didn't experience before. Right? John Calvin actually said it well when he said, while it is faith alone that saves, the faith that saves is never alone. It's never alone. Yeah, it is Jesus alone that saves you. It's faith that saves, right? But the faith that saves is never alone, right? It will always accompany itself with a changed life that listens to God and obeys him. And I, and I think this is hard, to be honest, because sometimes we hear people say that Christianity is all about rules and regulations and do's and don'ts. I mean, I grew up thinking that's what Christianity was. I just was try, not supposed to do certain things and to do other things. And I don't know, maybe, maybe you feel like that sometimes. There's a bunch of rules that you're trying to follow and not get in trouble about, you know? I was asking, do you, do you find it burdensome to be a Christian? Is it, is it a tiresome thing to follow Jesus? Well, of course, it's true that we make an effort to live godly lives. This isn't saying that it's easy, but it is fulfilling. It is truly satisfying. I mean, becoming like Jesus is who men and women were designed to be. But, but look at what John says in verse 3. What are his commands like? Because they are not burdensome. They are not burdensome. Why? Because it's not a burden to please somebody that you love, is it? When you love someone, you do all sorts of things that you wouldn't have done otherwise. I mean, have you ever done something for someone because you love them and then you thought to yourself, like, what's happened to me? You know? Easy for me to think is when I was dating Elizabeth in college and I was just hooked. You know, I was smitten and I was doing things that I literally had never done before. My parents were like, what's happened, you know, to you? I mean, I was writing her letters, just pumping them out as if I was writing a book or something, you know? Um, I made her a coloring book, you guys, laminated it, right? Drew pictures. I'm a terrible artist, okay? Don't ever ask her to see it. She might show it to you, and I don't want you to see it. But um, I started writing poetry. I became a poet, right? I even wrote a couple of haikus. I'm not lying to you, okay? At one point, I thought, what has happened to me, right? Because I don't have a to-do list. When I was dating her, like, oh, got to write that poem today. Well, I guess I better do it if I'm going to try to convince her to marry me or something. No, I was just like, I want to do this thing that I never wanted to do before. Why? Because I love her. I loved her. If you told me to write a poem for somebody else, though, I might do it, maybe. Depends on the content. But I would not want to do it, right? Someone once said, the commands of God are no more burdensome to a Christian than wings are burdensome to a bird. They're no more burdensome to a Christian than wings are burdensome to a bird. What makes God's commands light? It's love. It's love. If I've been born again and if I believe in Jesus, that will manifest itself in love for God and for his people. 
And my love is displayed, you guys, in obedience to God. This, this seems to be the reverse, actually, of how John has been arguing in his letter. He's been saying that love for others is evidence of my love for God. But here John is saying that our love for God will cause me to love other people. And that's why obedience is at the heart of his point. If I love God, I'll obey him, and his commands sync up with how I treat you, with how I love you. I mean, just take this one verse, just listen to this one verse, Romans 13, 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. If I love you, the point is, I'm not going to steal from you. Because I love you. And that's not going to be a burden to me. Right? The passage here that we are looking at challenges those of us who appear to love others well, but we don't love God. We need to check ourselves and go, am I really loving people? Can I even really love people? This verse also challenges those of us who appear to love God really well. We get up early, we do our devotionals, we do everything. And we appear to love God really well, yet we fail to concern ourselves with loving others. These are not two different things, you guys. They're the two sides of the same coin. And then believing in Jesus leads to love, which leads to obedience, which results in the display of that third reality that he's fleshing out here, and that's overcoming the world. We see this in verses 4 through 5. John has set out the worldly temptations that attack you in his letter. Just flip back one page to chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. What does it say? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world, right? So these things that are in the world, John's already told you, that are trying to sort of pull you away, as it were, from your devoted love to God, to kind of lure you away or something, that's what the world will actually do to you. But then he goes, if you go up in verse 14 there, what does it say to you? He talks about the people who are children of God in verse 14. It says the word of God abides in you and you overcome the evil one, right? Which he's talked about this throughout, that the idea of being of the world and being born of God, right? Being of the evil one, being of God. Right? We've seen this sort of pitted against one another all the way throughout, but here you're overcoming the world, right? You're overcoming the world, right? The world has temptations. They're trying to lure you away. The world is opposed to God, but also the one behind all of this is the evil one trying to defeat us, right? Here we are told that everyone born of God overcomes the world, though. I mean, really? It doesn't always feel like that, does it? I mean, do you ever feel like a bit of a failure? Do you feel burdened by how Scripture teaches us about how to use money or whatever it is, sexual temptation or anger or gossip or whatever it is, right? It's pretty radical, isn't it? So, so how do we overcome? Well, it doesn't say through our obedience, does it? It says through our faith, okay? The word here that says overcome there in verses 4 through 5, it's the same word as your word that's translated there, victory. Situation, again, where victory is the noun, overcome is the verb, right? But this is actually really important, really important, this Greek word is the word Nike, which is where our famous Portland company Nike got its word, right? And so 
you see the swoosh logo. That's the iconic Nike logo, and under it is the phrase what? Just, just do it. Just do it, people, right? What Nike is marketing to you, and I'm not bashing Nike. I wear Nike, right? What Nike is marketing to you, though, is that if you wear their clothes, you'll perform better, right? You'll have a better shot at winning, so just do it. Just do it. Same idea here, except John isn't saying, just do it, just overcome, right? He's saying, just did it, right? That's literally what he's saying. Who did it? What causes us to Nike, to experience the victory, right? It's our faith. But this faith is not in myself, is it? Right? When it's in myself, I don't feel like I overcome very well, do I? Contrary to what the world will tell you, this isn't believing in yourself, but placing your faith in someone else. Our faith is in the one who said to his followers on the night he was betrayed, in this world you will have troubles, but take heart. Get some courage from what I'm about to tell you. I've overcome the world. How? He never sinned. Right? Everything that the world tried to, to tempt him with or whatever, he didn't sin. Yet he offered himself in death as a sacrifice for yours. And through his death and resurrection, he's removed the penalty of your sin. He's paid for it, but he's also removed the power of sin over you. You're free. And one day when he returns, he will ultimately remove the presence of sin. That'll be your new reality. Jesus did it. He overcame. So now your faith in Jesus unites you to Jesus. And by faith in him, all that he has accomplished is applied to you, right? I mean, it's like if have you ever gotten on a plane before? I may have ever gotten on a plane. I think some of you maybe have, right? Let's say you get on a plane and you go to San Diego, okay? You're going to get off that plane, maybe hang out for a while, come home. When you come home, what are you going to say to everybody? I flew to San Diego. Did you fly to San Diego? You did fly to San Diego, but did you really fly to San Diego? You didn't really fly to San Diego, right? You can't fly. You're not a bird, right? You didn't get in the cockpit, right? You didn't pilot the thing, did you? You just got onto the plane, didn't you? And because you were on the plane, right, you flew to San Diego. Well, this is what this is telling you, basically. That's kind of how this works. Jesus is the pilot, and he's the plane, right? Your faith puts your feet on the plane because God has regenerated your heart to want to be on the plane, okay? And to another point here that's actually a really important one, uh, anybody in here afraid of flying? I'm terrified of flying, okay, personally. Um, I've gotten over it a little bit, but I'm still a little nervous, right? The same is true. It doesn't matter how scared you are of flying while you're on the plane or how confident you are while you're flying. Both people, no matter the fearful people that are like, I don't know if this is going to work really, and the people who are like, this is totally going to work, both people still get to San Diego together, don't they? This is just showing you that it's not the strength of your faith that saves you and causes you to overcome. It's the strength of the object of your faith that caused you to overcome. It's by looking to Jesus. It doesn't matter how fearful or confident you are in and of yourself about how this thing whole works, right? It's, it's the object of your faith that saves you. Um, Spurgeon encourages us by saying, it's ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this. For he's constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ, right? So how confident do I feel about this, right? We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It's what Jesus is, not who we are, that gives rest to the soul. 
If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus. As Jesus has won, I'm living from a place of victory, not trying to achieve it anymore. Right? That's why it says I overcome in the present sense, right? As I have this faith in Jesus. And so he wraps back around verse 1 here in verse 5, and he ties it all together, and he says, who's overcome the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The answer is no one. No one. This is what faith looks like. It's love manifested in obedience that results in overcoming because Jesus overcame. He got the Nike, right? Well, you might not feel like you're winning this morning. You're not feeling like you're overcoming. And right now you're thinking, how can I even know that Jesus is true, that this isn't just a psychological scam or something? And that's why I think John here is kind of trying to give us these witnesses of faith here that are strengthening that. Look what it says in verses 6 through 10. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made himself a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. This isn't blind faith. Right? There's, there's evidence, there's proof, there's testimony. Okay? Testimony is actually used, the word used eight times here in seven verses. And it says, Jesus came, verse 6. One-time event, right? It's not a repeated event. He came once and for all, and he came by water and blood, right? What is that? Well, it's, it's a reference, no doubt, that was pretty clear to the people who first read the letter, but it's kind of obscure to us. You know, things like this happen in our lives. Have you ever heard the phrase, you can't have your cake and eat it too? I've heard that phrase my whole life. I'm like, what does that even mean, right? I've thought about it at length, and I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. But somebody said it at one point and was like, this makes sense, and everyone said it makes sense, and you act like it makes sense, but it doesn't make sense, okay? <laughs> right? In the 90s, we'd always say, what's the 411? If I picked my kids up from school and said that to them now, they would go, what are you talking about? You know? Because you don't have to dial 411 to get information anymore, right? Things get lost over time in what they mean, but they mean something very clearly to the first audience. Same thing is here with water and blood. What is water and blood? Well, water, you guys, is picturing Jesus's baptism. It's picturing Jesus' baptism for you. And blood is picturing his cross. This water that's picturing Jesus' baptism, because think back, in your, in your mind's eye, right, to, to the pages of scripture where we see people going out to be baptized by John the Baptist. Why are they doing that? Well, it's for the forgiveness of sin, right? They're, they're turning. They're, it's a call to repent of their sins but when they're getting baptized by John, they're not being forgiven of their sins, right? But they're realizing they, they need to be forgiven, right? And so when Jesus goes and gets baptized, when he goes down into the water, we know that he has no sins of his own, though, right? But he was, what was he doing then? Well, he's taking responsibility for our sins. He's identifying with us as he begins his ministry. But then if you picture the blood, you picture the cross, and the cross Jesus, we see, again, wasn't dying for his own sins, was he? Right? He was dying for ours. He was paying the penalty. So in baptism, Jesus was accepting the responsibility of our sins, and in the blood, he's paying the penalty for our sins. 
But some people just want the water Jesus. That's what John's saying here, which is exactly the kind of people John's writing about, to warn his loved congregation to avoid following after. This is why he writes in clarification, not by water only, but by water and blood. Right? So some people want the Jesus who came by water, but not the Jesus who came by blood. Right? Someone who just identifies with us. Right? We like the life, we like the teachings, the identifications, the, the good deeds of Jesus, but we don't want the Jesus that came by blood. Right? But he came by water and blood. Our salvation is not offered just because the Son of God has become man, you guys, but because he also willingly died. We needed him to come and identify with us, but we also needed him to die. Our faith in Jesus depends on the testimony of witnesses. That's why you see in the Old Testament and the New Testament, right, important issues were decided with the testimony of two or three witnesses. You see this in Deuteronomy a couple different times. You see this in the book of Matthew, the book of John, 2 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, Hebrews. Here are two witnesses, John says, right? The water and the blood are these two historical events that, that people witnessed and saw that you read about in your Bibles. These are testifying to who Jesus is, but there's also a third witness, the Spirit. See, the water and blood are historical events, but the Spirit's testimony, guys, it's a little bit different because it testifies in your heart. If you read verse 9 literally, it says, if we accept the testimony of men, then we should accept the testimony of God. It's an argument of lesser to greater. He's like, if this is true, then... If God testifies about this, about who Jesus is, then it must be true, right? It's a lesser to greater argument. I mean, it's like if, if you ask someone, uh, hey, is, is Josh a snorer? And they're like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, he looks like a snorer. But I, I went on a men's retreat with him one time, and I remember sleeping in the same room as him, and he didn't snore. So my testimony is Josh is not a snorer, okay? You might go, that's pretty believable, Okay. But if you ask my wife, is Josh a snorer? And she's like, oh, don't even get me started, right? I can't even sleep at night, right? It's, it's horrible. You know what I mean? Like, he is a snorer. Whose testimony are you going to believe, right? Whose testimony are you going to believe? Well, you're going to believe the greater testimony, right? Right? This is what John's doing here. He's saying, right, are you going to believe this testimony? Which testimony is greater? If, if God gives testimony about his son, isn't that the best testimony and most reliable one? God's testimony is greater, The water and the blood make no sense to you until the Spirit comes and witnesses to your heart. See, John elevates even the gravity of his point here in verse 10 by saying, if you believe this powerful testimony of God, this testimony is said to be in you. This isn't mere information that you pick up and drop off. This isn't I'll be a Christian tomorrow kind of stuff. It's in you. The truth is in you because the Spirit who testifies is in you. Conversely, those who don't believe... He says, make God out to be a liar. Why? Because God is speaking. He's testifying about who Jesus is. This is pretty strong language, making God a liar. I mean, anybody like to be called a liar? And that always will kind of turn it up a notch, won't it? Someone calls you a liar, you go, you call me a liar, right? No one's ever responded to that with like, yeah, whatever. You know, That's that's a strong accusation, but that's what's happening here. God testifies that Jesus is his son, so if you reject him as his son, then you're making him out to be a liar because that's what he's saying, right? As unbelief in Jesus is not just an intellectual failure to accept the truth. It's a rejection of God. 
of who he is and all that he's done as an extended gift of love to you. Right? You've made God out to be a liar. In the Bible, in front of you, you have the two testimonies. Pray that God would open your eyes. Pray that the Spirit would come and testify in your heart. This is true. When God testifies in our hearts to who Jesus is, it's, it's like having a blindfold taken off, isn't it? You might have been around it for, for years, around who Jesus is. And one day, the, the blindfold comes off and you go, I can see now. God's testifying in your heart. What, what does this do to you and to us in our faith? These witnesses strengthen it. Our faith is not a blind faith. Events happened in history. Real people witnessed them. And now God himself acts as the third testimony in our hearts. If he doesn't testify, I don't believe. Right? So, so I want you to ask this morning, whose testimony about Jesus are you believing? What testimony do you believe? Whose do you listen to? You have people like Nietzsche, famous atheist, philosopher, says God is dead. Do you believe his testimony? The irony is he's dead. Right? But do you believe his testimony? How does he know? Right? People in John's time were testifying about who Jesus is. And John argued that they should listen to him and other eyewitnesses. Why? Because they were eyewitnesses. And here he is appealing to God. He's saying, do you believe the testimony of God or these other people that have all these opinions about Jesus that contradict God's testimony? Whose testimony do you listen to? Does it strengthen your faith? Does it cause you to love God more? Love others more? Do you find yourself obeying God out of love and overcoming temptations that are trying to drag you down because of the testimony you're believing? Is it improving your life, so to speak? When I see these testimonies with the eyes of my heart, when I see God's testimony, when I feel the weight of this, that strengthens my faith that as I love him and others in this world, as this world that is opposed to God hits me from time to time, I have the strength to keep going because of the testimony of the truth about who Jesus is. Our faith is strengthened by these testimonies, but John isn't done. He ends by showing that faith in Jesus will transform your life. Faith in Jesus has a deep transformative effect. Look how he ends in verse 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. John's summary here in verse 11 is that faith that God gave you, the testimony God gave you, produces eternal life. This is life for the ages kind of stuff. Right? It starts now in your soul, and it will never be snatched away. Right? It will go on. Faith in the Son, he equates it now to being the idea of having possession of the Son. And if you have Jesus, that means that you have something else, he says. You have life. You have life. And this life, John says, is not vaguely floating around. Right? It's in the Son. Right? Literally, this says, whoever has the Son has the life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have the life. So having the testimony is equated to having the Son. And having the Son is equated to having this kind of life. 
right? But look, this is really important. This isn't a byproduct of having the son. It's really important, okay? Jesus isn't selling you something, okay? This isn't a byproduct, okay? Life is in the sun. It's like this. If I have a tree, I have shade, don't I? But shade is a byproduct of having the tree, okay? That's not what this is talking about. Having the sun is not like having life as a byproduct of having a tree. Okay, does that make sense? What this is saying is like having a pond is, is you have water, okay? If you have a pond, you have water, right? It's, it's, it's what it's saying. It's, it's tying the two way more closely together than you and I often make it out to be. C.S. Lewis observed that there are two words in the New Testament for life. These are the words. He says bios, which is where we get our word for biology. It's, it's you breathing right now. It's the blood that's pumping through your body. It's the tree that gives you the shade kind of stuff. It's the pond and water stuff. But it always tends to what? It tends to run down and decay. There's another word. It's the word zoe. Something that is abundant and full and doesn't run out. And here's the thing, you guys. If you don't believe that true life is found in Jesus, then you're going to continue to look for it elsewhere. You're searching for life. Because all the life you're searching for keeps running down and decaying. Bios is what? It's, it's like technology, isn't it? It's entertainment, it's sports, it's substances that comfort you, make you feel good. It's physical pleasure, it's new clothes, it's a new circumstance, it's a new house, a new job, a restored health. All that stuff is only bios, okay? Because you find yourself wanting what? New circumstances again new health again, new houses again, new jobs all over again. You find yourself looking for the next hit, the next escape, the next word of approval, but Zoe, well, that's overflowing abundance that no one can take from you. And you carry it into every peak and valley of your life with this sort of sustainable contentment and joy. This is what C.S. Lewis said about these words. He said, bios has, to be sure, a certain shadowy or symbolic resemblance to Zoe, but only the sort of resemblance there is between a photo and a place, or statue and a man. A man who changed from having bios to Zoe would have gone through as big of a change as a statue which changed from being a carved stone to being a real man. And that is precisely what Christianity is about. This world is a great sculptor's shop. We are the statues And there's a rumor going around that some of us are someday going to come to life. And it's not just a rumor, you guys. Does your faith do that? What kind of life has the object of your faith produced? If it's not Jesus, you're putting your faith in something. You believe something even if that's just yourself? Has it left you wanting again or has it actually changed your life? I love the story of, uh, there's a Muslim who became a Christian in Africa and some of his friends asked him, why have you become a Christian? And he answered, well, it's like this. Suppose you're going down the road and you came to a fork in the road and there was two different directions and you didn't know which way to go. He said, and there at the fork in the road were two men. One was dead and one was alive. Which one would you ask which way to go? 
what happened is this guy saw someone alive. He saw a statue become a man. That's what believing in Jesus will do. That's what it does, you guys. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you have your faith strengthened as God's testifying in your heart this morning as you look at the witnesses like, yes, this is true? Do you see it? Do you believe? Let's all rise to our feet as I pray and then we go into our time of response. Heavenly Father, I do pray this morning that you would grant us a strengthening of our faith, God, by your grace this morning. Lord Jesus, would you just be displayed before the eyes of our heart once again? God, I pray that you would grant us that that confidence in you and not just in ourselves. Lord, I know that I just fluctuate often between those two worlds. And Lord, this morning I pray that we we would behold the water and the blood and that you would testify once again to the truth about who you are. And I pray that would create a transformative people here in our church, in our city, that your name might be great among all the nations. In Christ's name I pray, amen. As we're going into our time of communion now, and as we go into our time of communion this morning, as you go, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're, you're invited to come to these tables and to take the bread and the cup that are, again, symbolizing for you that the blood, right? But you're remembering this morning as you come, these testimonies, these witnesses that Jesus did come and identify with me, right? But he's also paid. He's paid. So now by our faith, I pray as you behold him with the eyes of your heart this morning, that you would come alive, that we'd be a bunch of these people that are statues turned to people walking around Gresham. Let's respond.